Okay, that's great, Robert. Thanks. Very good. Um, everyone can hear me, yeah? Good, good. Well, um, what I'd like to do is um, I'm grateful uh, for the opportunity to be with you again, even though we're a little bit separated. Um, by distance, it's nice that we can all be together. I'd like to read to you from John chapter 20, verse 24 uh, to 29. So John chapter 20, verse 24 to 29. And this is what it says. Now Thomas, also known as, as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers or my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have um, believed. So it's uh, kind of quiet here, so hopefully you can still hear me. Uh, well, let me just pray for a minute before we look at this passage. Lord, help us, we pray, to really engage with this passage of Scripture, even though we're separated by uh, distance um, and it's a little strange and different from what we're used to. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us to think about Thomas and apply some of the lessons from his life and story to our own lives, and particularly this incident that we've uh, just read about together. Uh, all of us can identify with him in our doubts and our failure to trust you and to believe, and we pray, Lord, that You'll bolster our faith and inspire us to trust you more um, as a result of looking at his life today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a child, we used to sing um, not, not as trendy a songs as, as they sing uh, at uh, New Beginnings. So we, we sort of had to do an affair of uh, Don't Be a Doubting Thomas. I don't know if you remember that story or that song. And uh, I haven't heard it for a long time. I guess that's because I'm an old person, probably. Um, that song obviously picks up on the fact that Thomas is a doubter. And uh, I guess that is how Thomas has been caricatured. He's been, uh, if you will, put in a box, the box of a skeptic. And for some reason, uh, down through the centuries, every time we think of Thomas, uh, we always think of him as a doubter or as a skeptic. And uh, that reminds me that you really, I mean, there's more to Thomas's life and his relationship with the Lord 
than this one occasion when we find him doubting. Uh, and I'll mention one or two of them just in a minute or two. But it's interesting, isn't it, that we remember him, he's perpetually remembered as a doubter. And it seems to me that you only have to make one mistake and uh, people will put you in a box, the box of your failure forever, uh, whether you like it or not. And I think that's true of many Bible characters. Think about David and the many things that he did, some incredible things. And yet he will always be remembered for the incident with Bathsheba. Um, so here is Thomas. He's a doubter. Uh, that's at least how we have remembered him. But I, I think it's a fair uh, caricature. I don't think it's unfair. I think when you look at Thomas's life, uh, the other incidents in his life, you get a little insight into how his mind worked. So I'll just give you one example, and that's in John 11, verse 16. So Jesus had been ministering in Jerusalem, and uh, he left Jerusalem, went uh, to the eastern side of the River Jordan, where John the Baptist had spent a great deal of time, um, because tensions between him and the religious leaders were, were rising, and so he left Jerusalem. And then, of course, he received news that uh, Lazarus had died when he was on the far side of the Jordan. Of course, Lazarus lived in Bethany, which is just on the outskirts of Jerusalem, two miles away from Jerusalem. And... Um, he told the disciples two days after he had received the news that he was going to go back to Bethany. And, and uh, the disciples said to him, don't go back to Jerusalem, anywhere near Jerusalem. The last time that you were there, uh, you were almost stoned to death. It, 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 it's foolish to go back to Jerusalem. And, and, and then Thomas pipes up and says, uh, let's go to Jerusalem and die with him. Now, Jesus didn't say anything about die, dying. But that was Thomas. He went from zero to 100 in about three seconds. Uh, for him, it was just, let's go to Jerusalem and let's just die with Jesus. Because that's the kind of character it seems that he is. He's got a, a pessimistic outlook on life. He sees the glass half empty, not half full. He lives, I think, uh, well, it's difficult to say, but he certainly sees the darker side of, of, of life. Um, and here we find him in this particular story struggling with the whole idea of the resurrection. Now I, I just want to dig out three things from this passage that we read. Um, I want you to think about the doubts that he had, the discovery that he made, and, and uh, then finally I want us to think about his declaration. So his doubts, his discovery, and his declaration. So we'll begin with his doubts. So first of all, uh, in that passage that I read to you, we see Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when, he, when Jesus came. So Thomas wasn't with the disciples uh, when Jesus met with them on Resurrection Sunday evening. Now, it's difficult to follow the movement of the disciples after Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, he was set upon by the mob and dragged to the high priest's house. The only two disciples, it appears, that followed him were Peter and John. The rest of them, uh, as we would say, did a runner. And of course, we don't know where they went to. They probably went to Bethany and probably stayed in Bethany over the next couple of days. But on Easter, 
Sunday morning, Jesus had appeared, first of all, to Mary Magdalene, then to a group of women. He had appeared to Peter a little bit later in that day. And then on Sunday evening, all of the disciples were together in uh, an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem. And uh, suddenly Jesus appeared to them in, 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 in the middle of this room. Now, I don't know why they had come together. Uh, I suppose they were discussing what had happened. They were thinking about the implications of that for them and for their future lives. They were discussing the rumors that they had heard, the stories that they'd heard that Jesus had been raised again from the dead. And uh, so here they are, a group of them together, but there's one person missing, and, and that's Thomas. Because he seems to have given the assembling of the, his, his assembling with the disciples a wide berth. But I, the point I just want to make, out, make, make is this, that in doing so, he missed out. He missed out on the blessing of seeing and experiencing the resurrected Christ. And he was left in a state of spiritual darkness and turmoil for another week when he could have known the peace of God and the knowledge that Jesus was alive, but because he wasn't present, because he, he was absent, he missed out on uh, this blessing. And I know it's often tempting, I, I don't know if you find this, but it's often tempting to give the assembling of uh, the believers together for worship and to hear God's word explained. It's tempting sometimes if you're feeling in a bit despondent, just to give that a wide berth, isn't it? I mean, I, I live on the edge of the Pentland Hills some Sunday mornings. They look very appealing. Why don't we just go and go for a walk on the hills and forget all about meeting with other believers? But I think we miss out. Miss out as Christ comes to meet with his people and as his people meet with Christ. And it's important for us uh, to be present, otherwise we will miss out. But the second thing is his attitude then, um, as we think about his doubts. So the disciples, um, the rest of the disciples would have found Thomas and told him that uh, the rumors, the news, the stories, the reports that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And Peter or Thomas's response to the other disciples was, unless I see the nail prints in his hand, and unless I can put my, my hand into the wound in his side, I'm, I'm not going to believe. Now, he's really setting out his stall here. He's looking for hard evidence. He's making it clear that unless he, he can be presented with hard evidence, he's not going to believe in the resurrection. Now, I don't think it's unreasonable to want evidence. I don't think the Bible expects us to throw our brains away when we become uh, Christians. But the manner of his response, it seems to me, is a little bit odd for a couple of reasons. One, um, the other disciples had never given him any reason to doubt their reports. And the other disciples had believed Peter's report when he reported that he had met the risen Christ. Remember when the two from the, the Emmaus Road went back to Jerusalem and, and they met with the, the other disciples, they found them believing because the Lord had appeared to Peter. He hadn't appeared to them yet, but they believed that he was alive because of the report that Peter had given them. And 
in the very least, Thomas could have said, well, you know, if you, if you guys believe this, there must be something to it. But he just dismisses it uh, completely out of court, and he, and he refuses to believe. The other thing that strikes me is, is that, you know, we might be tempted to say, well, he's been asked to believe in something that's, that, that, that is naturally impossible, that someone will rise from the dead. But Thomas has just spent two and a half years with Jesus. Jesus defied the laws of nature nearly every day of those two and a half years. Jesus stood on a boat and spoke to the winds and waves, and they obeyed him. He stood outside the grave of a man who was dead for four days and called him to come to life. Jesus fed a whole crowd with a little boy's lunch, multiplied the bread again and again. So Jesus had given Thomas every reason to believe that that this shouldn't be just dismissed out of court. And I'm, I, I, I'm sure the rest of the disciples said to Thomas, don't you remember the many times that he said to us that he would suffer many things at the hands of the high priest or the chief priests and the elders? He'd be handed over to the Romans or the Gentiles and be crucified and that he'd be raised on the third day. Don't you remember all the occasions when he spoke to us about that, Thomas? But, but Thomas is unprepared to believe it's not that he can't. It's not that the evidence isn't there. It's not that there, that there is something for him to think about. There is. But he just refuses to believe flat out. And so he lives in a, in a world of darkness and despondency for a whole week. Um, now, as we think about the implications of that for our lives, um, I, it's interesting that Thomas is um, an Aramaic name. And Didymus is a Greek name, and both of these names mean twin. Uh, and it, it seems to me that, well, Thomas's twin is never mentioned in Scripture, but he see, it seems to me that he has many twins today because we're experts at doubting, aren't we? We've got every reason to believe. As we think about the way that Jesus has helped us, the Lord has sustained us, but still we doubt when things are difficult that that will continue. And although we can point the finger at Thomas, the truth is we're doubters and we need to respond to the invitation of Jesus to come and believe. Well, the third, the second thing then is this, and uh, I need to keep moving because um, I don't want you to get bored as you watch a screen. The third thing is the discovery of Thomas. So a week later, one full week later, so this Sunday that we're in now, um, Thomas is with the rest of the disciples when Jesus breaks into the room again. And uh, I, I, I am sure it must have been a bit of a shock for them because the doors have been locked and Jesus appears in the middle of the disciples. Luke tells us that he ate a bit of fish, broiled fish. And here he is walking among the disciples. He's, he's in this locked room because even though they're locked up, Jesus is still able to appear with them and to be with them. That, that, and uh, I'm sure the rest, the rest of the disciples were delighted to see Jesus, um, excited to see Jesus. I, I wonder how Thomas felt. But before we go on to that, let's just note that, you know, even though we're locked up in our houses, we're not beyond the reach of Jesus. And even in our individual homes, the Lord can be with us. And the Lord is with us. He's the unseen guest at every table 
and he is a silent listener to every conversation and even in our locked homes the Lord is with us. But let's think a little bit about Thomas. Um, Thomas must have felt a bit startled. He must have felt a bit guilty I think when Jesus appeared because of all the things that he had said, no way am I going to believe unless I can put my finger in his nail wound and my hand into his side. There's no way I'm going, um, going to believe. And I wondered if Thomas expected Jesus to tell him how disappointed he was in his failure to believe, his failure to believe in the resurrection. But isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't come with words of condemnation necessarily. He comes initially with a greeting of peace. Uh, shalom, shalom was the greeting. Uh, he wished the disciples, he didn't want to terrorize them, but he wanted them to experience wholeness and well-being because that's what the word shalom means. And he wants Thomas to be at peace. He wants him to be at peace in his heart that all of his sins, even over this past week, all of his doubts, have been atoned for it, and the resurrection is proof that the sacrifice was accepted, nothing left to pay, so Jesus comes again from the grave. He wants Thomas to be at peace in the knowledge that Jesus is alive, he's not dead, the cross was not the end, and he can know Jesus, and Jesus is able to show up in, in his life and be with him and lead him and guide him like a shepherd. And, and Jesus wants Thomas and the rest of the disciples to experience peace, that they don't serve a dead savior. They serve a, a living savior and one who is alive. And, the, and then the last thing is, is just in, in, in regard to his discovery is the invitation of Jesus. I mean, Thomas must have got such a shock when Jesus says to him, well, Thomas, come and put your finger in my nail wound and come and put your hand in my side. Um, Jesus wasn't there. He thought Jesus wasn't there. He thought Jesus uh, was absent when he said that to the rest of the disciples. But Jesus heard, even though he couldn't be seen, Jesus heard. And now he, in, he invites Thomas to come and, and, and see the proof and examine the proof for himself. And I don't know what strikes you about all of that, but what strikes me is how patient Jesus was with Thomas and how gracious he is with him. Jesus came to lead him on, uh, not to destroy him. He came to lead him on. Jesus extended grace to Thomas. And uh, I think about that in, in relation to my own life, how gracious God has been to me. I mean, God could have thrown the book at me a hundred times. And, uh, but God is gracious with all of us, isn't he? All of us have got so much to be thankful for today. How graciously... God deals with us and gently leads us on, even when we've made such a horrific mess of things. And, and maybe you're listening to this and you feel, well, I've made a bit of a mess. Is there any way back for me? Well, if there's a way back for Thomas, there's a way back for you, if there's a way back for all of us. Um, and, and we find that the Lord is gracious. Well, the last thing is this. I want you to think just for a few minutes about the, the declaration of Thomas. So two things, the titles that he uses, having uh, been invited to examine the Lord, where does all of this end? It ends with him declaring that Jesus is Lord and God. He's Lord and he's God. Thomas now realizes 
that Jesus is the Lord. And uh, I guess Jesus had demonstrated his lordship, hadn't he? Demonstrated his lordship when he was alive over things like nature, over things like uh, evil, as he delivered people that were demon-possessed, over things like sickness. He demonstrated his lordship over sickness as he healed people who couldn't walk and couldn't see. And now Thomas realizes that Jesus has demonstrated his lordship over death as he's defeated it and he has come forth like a victor from it. And so Thomas acknowledges Jesus is Lord and he's God. And he comes to realize that this is the one that he serves and, and this is the one that he follows. And in the middle of this crisis, I think it's a timely reminder for us, Jesus is still Lord. He's God in the good times and in the bad times. He's God in the day and he's God in the night. Um, and one day I think every knee will bow and acknowledge his lordship. But I want you to be encouraged that your saviour is still Lord in this crisis. No matter how it seems, he is still the one who is in absolute control and can be trusted. And finally, not just the titles that he uses, but the terminology. He says, my Lord and my God. He uses a personal pronoun twice. It's not just... It's not just an academic knowledge of Jesus' lordship. He knows that Jesus is now his lord. And uh, I think he could have sung the song, Mine, 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 I know thou art mine, Savior, dear Savior, I know that thou art mine. And that's the kind of language that he uses here, my lord and my God. I hope that you can say that Jesus is your Lord and that he is your God and that this is academic, but this is Jesus where you trust him and you believe in him as Lord and as Savior. Lord of my life, I crown thee now, thine shall the glory be. So the three things were really simple. thought about his doubts. He distanced himself from the other disciples, refused to meet with them, refused to believe, and lived in a world of despair and darkness. Those were his doubts. He refused to believe, and he refused to trust. His discovery, he found out that his unbelief was unfounded. And although Jesus could have thrown the book at Thomas, he found that Jesus was full of grace, undeserved grace. And finally, he was led to a place of great uh, proclamation that Jesus was Lord and Jesus was God. And he affirmed him as his own personal Lord and his own personal God. And I hope that these few thoughts have been a help to you. Thanks for listening. So I'll hand back to.